August 16, 1857, a storage jar with two slab handles, 19 inches tall, on it an inscription. I wonder where is all my relation, friendship to all and every nation. Slave Potter, David Drake. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. That intro quote was a poem written by a historical figure, a somewhat of a folk hero, and a source of inspiration to today's guest. So David Drake was a potter, in slave times. And today's guest, Jim McDowell, is an outsider artist, a potter, a ceramics artist, who finds uh, a great wealth of inspiration in David Drake. And you're going to hear about that all um, in the episode. So I'm not going to get into any of that history because it's much more interesting to hear it out of Jim's mouth. Now, this was the very beginning of a mini trip down to Asheville, North Carolina driving through the incredible mountains of southwestern Virginia through Tennessee, popping into northern, western North Carolina, and coming down those Blue Ridge Mountains, stunningly beautiful. And as you come through the mountains, one of the first towns you come to is Weaverville. And in the suburbs of Weaverville, I was able to interview Jim um, at his home um, in his pottery studio. And this episode is incredible because I don't rare, I rarely talk with artists and um, I have I have strong feelings about what an artist is. So if you've seen my illustration work at our newest nature, I consider that illustration. I don't consider that art. I think there are many people out there who are painters, who are potters, who are craftspeople, who are um, sculptors, et cetera, et cetera, photographers, all of those things are absolutely amazing. They're creative and they make our world more beautiful. But I feel that there are very few actual artists out there. And Jim is an artist. I heard a psychologist once say that an artist's role is to make the unknown known. I dive into history And I think about who were those artists that made the mystery of life, who made the unknown, who they showed it to us. You think of artists like Salvador Dali, so the great Spanish surrealist. He showed us a world that we didn't know was possible. To me, he showed us pure, spontaneous, unconscious imagery. The backgrounds were the landscapes of his childhood, 
but the imagery were mundane objects, a lobster, uh, random things and people and a baguette, but put together, it created this image of mysticism of the mundane in random order, spontaneous and pure. You think of artists like the Belgian surrealist René Magritte. You may be familiar with a painting that he did of a, um, a businessman, 1800s businessman with a, top, with a little hat, a black hat and black suit, and his face is obscured because an apple is hovering in front of it. Magritte was showing us dream images. Magritte was showing us, you know, whatever it was, 100 years. I'm not quite, uh, not quite sure when Magritte was around. It might have been 1920s or something. Uh, so 80 years, whatever. He was showing us, to me, a glitch in the Matrix. He was showing us the uncanny. In the Matrix, the, there's a black cat that walks by and they see it twice and they say there's a glitch. To me, to me, Rene Magritte was showing us those glitches, the uncanny, the optical illusion, the dreamlike, showing us the unknown. Moving on to artists like Goya, one of my all-time favorites. He was a court painter. He por- painted portraits and they're quite, they're whatever, they're mediocre. But in his own time, painted on the walls of his house, he painted the black paintings, these mysterious images of a pan-like devil dancing, reveling, paintings of witches, of a floating person, of distorted faces of the masses. He created illustrations uh, called the disasters of war, these nightmarish imagery of the horrors of war. Very few people saw these paintings. He painted on the walls of his home. You may be familiar with his painting of Saturn devouring his son, which is of this mythological giant tearing the head off of its child. Incredibly potent. What are these images? Where are these images coming from? I think of artists like Hilma A.F. Clint. So again, she painted landscapes. She painted nice flowers. But in secret, she was a spiritualist. She would do, um, you know, she would do conjuring of, of spirits and ghosts. And she would do these incredibly mystical paintings that now art history is starting to see as the first abstract paintings. She hid them. No one had seen these for decades. They're paintings that look almost like molecular. They're of shapes. They're of a giant triangle. They're, they're mystic. And she was literally communing with spirits that were telling her what to paint. I think of another one of my favorite artists, H.R. Giger. If you have seen the movie Alien, the reason that that is such a masterpiece is because for the art direction, they hired an artist. They hired H.R. Giger, who already was um, prolific with his art. And he was he had like a fully realized universe of these bizarre, dark, anatomical-looking extraterrestrial world. So when the movie came to be, they hired him and he came on board and he created the world of the alien. And that's what made that film so incredible. So here again is a man channeling a mystery. What is that dark world that he was able to see so vividly and painted for decades and decades and decades as if possessed by another universe? I think of a Polish surrealist, almost fantasy artist, Beksinski. And out of the ruins of World War II, he painted these nearly 
fantastical images of an apocalyptic world. Haunting, haunting, haunting imagery. Again, where do these images come from? They've come from an unknown place. He's showing us what what only he can see and so we can feel what he can see. I think of Vincent van Gogh, not one of my favorite artists, but he was painting what he could see and making it known. He was seeing almost the fabric of light and um, the movement of light and was able to translate that through painting for us to see what he was seeing. Lastly, Jean-Michel Basquiat, which we talked about briefly in our conversation today with Jim, an African-American artist from the 60s, 70s, I believe. He was a friend of Andy Warhol. He was one of the, he was the first to make graffiti high art. And he would do these canvases that had this kind of um, early graffiti style and he would do faces on it. But the faces almost have a haunting, like African primal mask feeling to them. Again, he's showing us the unknown. And that leads me to today, today's guest, Jim. He, through history, through his, his jugs, he is making something unknown known. And it definitely, to me, feels like it harkens to the African masks. And the more I look at Jim's pottery since about the week and a half that I recorded this, the more I'm struck by the power of them. After this interview, I keep looking at pictures on his website and they truly, they radiate with an intensity, an instinctual intensity, um, a mythological in, in intensity. Um, you know, some of them are almost creatures. They're, they're, not, they're not people, they're, they're creatures. And I think that Jim is making the mystery of the ancestors and of the the pain and trauma of a of an extremely dark chapter in american history he's making that unknown known both through his art and through the way he speaks about it and when he tells the story of a particular art piece of art that he made a jug that he titled the slave when i first read the article, I had tears in my eyes, my hairs were standing up. And when he tells it in this episode, I had even qu quite the same reaction. It is extremely potent of a story. So if you go to blackpotter.com, you will see some of Jim's work. Um, his work is now at the LACMA. So he has hit the big leagues. He is He's the real deal gallery level artist. And I'll put some images in the links. I've also put a little link to a PBS documentary um, that shows Jim um, as they're exploring the face jug. Um, it shows Jim, and that would be a good way if you want to watch that to see the process, to see the, the manual potter's wheel, and to see the jug come to life. So before today's episode with Jim, I am going to do a pinch of reading. I'm going to read a little bit about some of the, the spiritual connotations with um, African ceramic vessels. And um, I'm going to do a little bit, read a few more of the poems by this David Drake uh, figure, this potter. Uh, before I get into that, let me just say, um, well, thank you to the new and original Patreon supporters. I want to thank Diana Gonzalez, Rachel Hackshaw, Franklin Renshaw, Ann Stanley of 
Pyramid store in Waynesboro, Virginia. The last podcast guest, Tyler Lively, Jess Padgett, who just sent me a wonderful historical cookbook, and Michelle Alderson. Thank you all, and thank you to the um, lower tier Patreon guests. All of you are helping to make this podcast better. And what I mean by better is I'm going to go further. The more loot I can get to cover expenses, the farther I'm going to drive, camp, you know, spend a few days in a location, which is what I have done with this first episode in the Asheville trip. The ones coming up after this, we will be speaking with a cultural ambassador of the Cherokee on the uh, Cherokee reservation in North Carolina. We're going to speak to Rebecca of Blood and Spice Bush. I'm assuming many of you follow her Instagram. It's going to, that one gets very historical and witchy. And lastly, I'm speaking with Lori from Greenheart Gardens. And that conversation was incredible about reincarnation, past lives, et cetera. So that is going to be what you're going to hear in June and July. So these, this is from a book called Carolina Clay, The Life and Legend of the Slave Potter Dave. So while you're going to hear the history on the podcast with Jim about um, David Drake, the potter, um, I wanted to just read some of his poems because we didn't quite get into that um, too much. So he would inscribe these onto his ceramic vessels. Um, so this is in like the 1850s time period, generally. And here's the one that I read for the intro with a little bit more background information. I wonder where is all my relation, friendship to all and every nation. In this, Dave's most personal poem, he wonders openly about distant family members. He was apparently separated from his kinfolk three times during his life. In his youth, when he became the property of Harvey Drake in 1836, when Reuben Drake took his other slaves to Louisiana, and in 1847, when Reverend John Landrum's estate was broken up. Here, Years after these events, Dave seems to still be burdened by them. A pretty little girl on a verge. Volcaic mountain, how they burge. Wealthy Southerners often visited the great classical ruins of Europe, including those of Pompeii. They brought back tales of the eruption of Vesuvius, stories that were doubtless overheard and repeated in the slave community. Dave uses the imagery of a volcano here to describe a young girl on the verge of maturity. Horses, mules, and hogs, all our cows is in the bogs. There they shall ever stay till the buzzards take them away. Dave wrote this fully realized quatrain only a few weeks after many of his Pottersville companions were taken by Reuben Drake to Louisiana. Dave was left behind probably because he had recently lost one of his legs in a railway accident. He was as powerless to follow the route to the west as if he were stuck in the bogs. This may account for the poem's general sense of dejection. Great and noble jar, hold sheep, goat, or bar. Dave made two enormous jars on May 13, 1859, of which this was one. He shared credit with another pottery slave, Badler, by signing them with both their names. As he had done in his poem of July 29, 1858, Dave pronounced bear as bar to create a rhyme. A noble jar for pork or beef, then carry it around to the Indian chief. 
At the time Dave wrote this, Native Americans still hunted wild animals in the Carolina mountains. Lewis Miles could have traded jars for hides for his tannery, providing Dave with the subject for his poem. And now I'm going to read a little article posted on studiopotter.org. This is written by Adam Posnack, who is a teacher of ceramics at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville. The title is To Serve the Divine. African and African Pan-American religious cultural systems make use of an array of ceramic vessels and objects. Within these cultures, special pots are understood to literally house divinity and are receptacles for detailed and painstaking spiritual offerings. In most cases, the pots reside in lavish altar cabinets surrounded by fine fabrics, statuary, wood carvings, and beaded items. In other contexts, they lie and repose on earthen floors, bathed in rum mist, cigar smoke, candlelight, and shadow. They are sung to, drummed to, beseeched, and prayed to. In order to gain an understanding of this use of pottery, it is necessary to point out some of the basic characteristics shared by the various cultural practices concerned. Throughout the Americas, wherever African culture took root, which is almost everywhere, certain Neo-African or African Atlantic regions came into being. The majority of the Africans forcibly brought across the Atlantic were citizens of West and West Central Africa, and many of the people in the enslaving cultures, especially those in the Caribbean and Latin America, were Catholic. A hybridized form of religion and cultural practice was created, particularly in the Caribbean, Central America, and Southern America, but also in a few North American locations, such as Southern Louisiana and the Sea Islands of South Carolina and Georgia. In most instances, a core of West and Central African cosmology was augmented and established by, if not merged with, Catholicism. The resulting religious forms were many and distinct, including voodoo in Haiti, Lukumi, often known as Santeria in Cuba, Sango Baptist in Trinidad, Candomblé, Umbanda, and Quimbanda in Brazil, Obia in Jamaica and Trinidad, and Palo Mayombe in Cuba. It is extremely important to note that each of these religions represents a unique and complete cultural system, and that they resemble one another in only in general terms. These various religions could be compared to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which are all traditions of the book, but are quite distinct from one another. The common cosmology of the African religions in the Americas includes a singular but remote god served by a contingent of spirits or lesser deities who function as intermediaries with human beings. It was these spiritual beings with whom human beings deal on a daily basis, God being far too remote and busy to be concerned with the everyday lives of individuals. These lesser divinities are often identified with a specific aspect of nature, it is quite apparent how believers of this concept of the universe, with a creator God served by a bevy of lesser divine beings, have drawn parallels with the Catholic cosmology, namely God and the saints. Vessels in general, and clay pots specifically, are utilized in a way that can be confusing to a cultural outsider. Upon initial viewing, one might be tempted to conclude that the vessels and pots and their contents are themselves objects of worship. 
This interpretation led early cultural studies scholars to apply the concept of the fetish, whereby, allegedly, an inanimate object is elevated to divine status. This is a fundamental misinterpretation. In fact, the vessels used in African and African-American sacred practice are provided as temporary seats or housing for the divine essence. In other words, the pot is not itself sacred, but rather it contains the spiritual force. Kept within an open or lidded clay pot, metal cauldron, or wooden jar are sacred materials, plant, animal, and statuary considered to be appealing to emblematic of and nourishing for a specific divine entity. The vessel is a temporary abode for a spirit, or more accurately, for a small facet of an unfathomably vast spiritual essence. The style, size, and material of these vessels vary widely, ranging from a colossal Palo Mayombe iron cauldron filled with material including dirt, iron objects, sticks, rocks, and bones, and weighing hundreds of pounds, to a minute, haft and dried gourd holding a few stones, to a plain terracotta pot or a baroque porcelain soup tureen. Typically, an initiate may own one vessel dedicated to a single spiritual force, while a senior priest may possess many of these sacred pots, representing a complete pantheon. I'm Jim McDowell, also known as the Black Potter. I'm in Weaverville, North Carolina, and I'm in my studio getting ready to do a podcast. That is right. That is right. Um, so, yeah, why I contacted you, and I'm so excited to talk to you, is I was kind of telling you this inside. that So I lived in New York City for 10 years, mm -hmm. and when you're in New York, you have access to so much culture and the arts, and like the Met is a museum that encompasses, I think it's one of the only museums on earth that encompasses the very earliest people to all the way to contemporary art to today. But what was lacking for me was um, folk art. I had never really thought about it. I was never attracted to it until I moved to the country. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden me and my girlfriend started being so enamored by what is folk art? Do folk artists even consider themselves that? And there's a kind of a, a rougher style to it. It's very soulful. And then my girlfriend started getting really into clay. And we started making our own mugs, making our own bowls. And through kind of combining those two things, we came across face jugs. Okay. And I didn't know anything about this. So that is why I'm here today. And I'm so excited because you, like, you're the guy. <laughs> I'm the guy, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so... First, because this is audio and not visual, can you describe what is a face jug? Well, a face jug to me is a um, symbolic jug. It started in Africa, usually made by the witch doctor or village elder, and it was contained the spirits. Um, they would put nails and different kind of things into it to embody the spirits. Face jugs came from Africa, and, and the slaves brought it here. Those who survived the Middle Patches, they, they brought that culture with them. Face jugs were used to honor uh, ancestor for protection because you got to understand, when they came here, they didn't come straight from Africa here. 
They came from Africa in the Middle Passage to the islands where they picked up voodoo. Coming to the United States, the commissioners wanted to quickly convert them to Christianity. And so they combined ancestor worship in Africa, voodoo in Jamaica and the islands, and Christianity. That's my big word for the day, amalgamation. They amalgamate those, those three religions and the face joke. So that because slaves were not allowed to have a grave marker, a face joke would take the place. If you built a new house or something to live in, face joke would be buried at the lintel of the doorpost so it would offer protection. So that's hence the face joke. The difference that I bring about is not so much the African features, which is scarification and the different things that the white potters or white artists also understood uh, early in the 1870s is a thing called Dadaism, where they just threw out all the rules. And that's what black people do. We're, we're outside artists. The, the mouth is not in the mouth area. It's anywhere it wants to be. So I do scarification. I do uh, broken plates. I do china. I do all kinds of things there. So mine have African features. The noses are big. The eyes are droopy. The ears have uh, different kind of ornaments in it. I put glass on it so it runs down as tears. So my face just reflect where I came from, also where I am. Also, on my face joke, I start to write uh, historical things. I, I do a slave potter Dave who wrote poetry on his on his pots. I write in like uh, Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass. So I write things on the back of face jokes have to me not to just be ugly. They have to have a significant historical significance. And that's why I do face jokes. I mean, everything you just said is so incredible that I feel like we can talk for an hour <laughs> yeah, about everything yeah. you just said. Yeah. Um, well, so another thing I find so interesting now that I live in the country is folk magic. Yeah. So to learn that these face jugs are started out as a ceremony, as a sacred ceremony, yeah. incredible. Yeah. But w before we get into that, actually, describe what do they look like. Like what? So you just said like the amazing, the the universe around the face jug, the mm -hmm. history, why they are. But what do they actually look like? To because so, obviously people are going to go and Google it while they listen. Right. But describe it. What is it like? What is the actual thing in your hands? The face jug starts as a vessel. Uh, they would make their own beer, spirits, or wine. So the mm -hmm. face jug was a vessel. But when they embellished it with the eyes and the ear and the teeth and all kind of stuff, that's when the spiritual elements would come to it. They would also add in uh, bones and, and and leaves and different things from the forest in the jug. Incredible. It was almost like uh, p black people in the South used to wear what they call a juju bag. It was, it was things to keep protection for them. So in the face jug would be the juju stuff, you know, whatever it would be. Like so, what? Like what? Well, it would be, it could be a bat wing. It could be a bone of a, a different animal. It could be uh, web, cobwebs, it, anything that they felt the spirit would reside in. I mean, you know, when, when the people came, they brought, their, they brought their ancestors with them. They brought their traditions with them. And even though the white uh, tried to tap it down, uh -uh. Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't, they were not able to do it. You know, like the missionaries was trying to quickly convert them to Christianity. They knew about Jesus before they got here. What you telling us about Jesus? We knew about that man that hung on the cross. We know about that. So they have all that combined and they put it in the, in the, in the jugs, you know. Now my jugs... I don't, I don't so much do the spiritual end of it that they did, but my spirituality comes from knowing the story of my people. 
Right. I want to tell the story. That's why I do the facial. Somebody said, you need to stop doing them ugly ass things. But I can't stop because the ancestors insist that I tell their stories. That's why I do the face jokes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so something I'm so with this podcast, I'm mm. so interested is people having people who do have a connection to their ancestors. Right. Yeah. So how do you feel those ancestors? Like, do you feel? You know, something I've thought about a lot, I'm an artist too, and right. I've had this conversation with people. When you're really making art, you're like channeling. Yes. And so do you feel them like working through your body? I feel like how do you feel how do you feel that is there something can you describe how you feel it? I feel them in my dreams. Really? I have dreams. And and I have started to keep a piece of paper there because if you don't write it down, you will lose it. Uh, I'll give you a good example. I wanted to do a face jug and I was doing something to the face jug. And this is about a couple months ago. And I was saying in my, in my brain, where did you see that at? And I heard a voice say, dummy, you haven't seen it. You're starting it. You're the bridge between when we stopped and you started. So they give me ideas. They're the ones who who got me here. It's funny you should be here to tell me. We thought, my, we knew that family history, we're from South Carolina, right? My wife went online and Ancestry.com and found out we are really from Henderson, North Carolina. So the ancestors brought me back 20 miles from where we started. A lot of my ancestors are white. They're from Scotland. Wow. You know, the McDowell. Yeah, your last name, yeah, McDowell. McDowell. I guess I'm from the clan McDowell. I don't know. Wow. So I'm back here where we started, you know, and this is like <laughs> hundreds of years later. So how did, how did I come, a black man come up with the name McDowell? <laughs> yeah, it's me. I'm here. And the ancestors are still dealing. I mean, the jokes you see right there on my, my shelf, they are telling me to, to honor the ancestors, to remember the story. These are disadvantaged people. You yeah. tried to kill them. You know, a ship might have had 500, only 200 made it. Right. The rest of them were doped in the ocean. But these people that not only that you abused and, and misused, they'd only thrive, but they succeeded too. And I'm, I'm a part of that. And that's why I am definitely hard about making my face up and telling the story. That's what I have to do. Yeah. It's incredible. And... Um, <clears throat> Here's something I've been, we're going fast. I feel like we're, going, we're okay. ripping through it. But <laughs> I, at some point I want to get into like the, the history stuff. Like how did people, yeah, let's do that right now. How, what was it like in colonial times? What was it, what, what was going on with pottery? Okay. Like did every household have someone making pottery for that house? Was there a village potter? Yeah. It'd be a village potter. Yeah. Uh, colonial times. You got to understand that the people who came here, uh, Puritans or whatever they were, were fleeing religious persecution. Mm -hmm. So they had, a, they had a potter, but their pottery was more or less uh, like Toby jugs, you know, where they satirized the rich with the big nose, with the bookers hanging out, the mustaches and stuff. But it was functional pottery. It was plates and bowls and cups and stuff like that. But every society, whatever country, has effigy jugs. Effigy? Yeah, effigy. Like when you die, you, yes. you, you did that. Uh, the slaves brought their tradition. When they initially came, uh, I don't know, whatever, 1600, 
they were slaves, but they, they don't have any potters there. But the potter that I really focus on is called Slave Potter Dave, David Drake hmm. from uh, Edgefield, South Carolina. Now, he was a slave, but he used to make these huge, enormous jugs that they stored food in. He was a cash crop. Got it. Yeah. So there was a pottery center in every uh, village, but they didn't always have potters. They had a lot of itinerant potters who come around and they would, for a certain fee, they would make pots and then build a kill and fire. So they would like travel to make pottery pottery for for a village. But Dave was one who stayed at this place, you know, and he made the pots. And they, they had potters come. But they couldn't keep them because Dave was making the best pots quicker than they could. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. But was it pretty normal for um, an enslaved African American to become a craftsperson, or was that abnormal? That was dependent on the area. Uh, if they had a white potter there, their job was to go get the clay, process the clay, cut the wood for fire and the kills, uh, things like that. Dave is one of the few mm. that expressed an interest early on. Mm. And uh, and the man who owned him, uh, Mr. Harvey Drake, he asked him, I think it was about 15 or 16, would you like to learn the wheel? And mm. he taught him. And by the time he got 17, 18, he was making the most fantastic work. Mm. So he was rare, a mm. rarity. There are more, more potters out there, black potters out there. But to have a, a black craftsman, mm. You got to understand there was a slave first. That definition never entered to the white mind. Dave wrote on his pots after he realized that he was, uh, you know, he would write down, uh, give me silver, give me gold, because they're not good for your soul. Dave could read and write. The the master taught him how to read and write, because he said, you know, in order to be a good person, you need to know the Bible. Well, he taught him, which was, in that time, it was a capital offense to teach a slave to read and write. Really? This man not only know how to read and write, he wrote on his jugs. Today, his jugs selling for millions of dollars. Are you serious? Yes. Dave's jugs are selling, man. I mean, there's one out there for $2 million now. You wow. Know? Yeah. Um, for someone listening who maybe is a hunter, who is an herbalist, who's never done clay before, mm-hmm. how was that guy, Dave, how was he, what was the style? Was it with coil? No. Or was it with a wheel? It was a, with a treadle wheel where you pump Do, it with, with your, your foot? foot and then you, you like make Like an old it. sewing machine. You, yeah, like and then you make it so high and then you add a coil and throw the coil up. He made pots that were up two or three foot tall and almost a foot or so wide. That You know, there was no refrigeration then. Things had to be salted or put in the ground some kind of way. So he made jugs that they used to put store the food in. And so if to go into the root cellar... It'd be in one of these pots. Yes. Yeah, the, the sauerkraut, or the salt, or the salted beef. I mean, they kill a hawk. You know, in, in, the, in the fall, they kill a hawk. They salt it down, and they put it in one of his jugs. You know, that's that's how they stored the food. You know? Amazing. So th- would, there would be a top? Yeah, there'd be a top. He'd make a lid for it, okay. and then they band it with uh, wax and, and, and uh, Interesting. some kind of linen or something to, to keep the uh, bugs from getting in it. Now, know? did that guy, Dave, start doing the faces? No. We... Well, so far, they have archaeologists have not found any face jugs that Dave made. Even though there's somebody out there said there's one they think that he made. He was mostly famous for making the big jugs and writing things on them that he knew about in the world. Yeah, so. he would put quotes on it, his he, own co- his own words. Well, he he was he was also uh, uh, owned by a guy named uh, Har- uh, Doctor Ludrum. He had a newspaper called the Hyde. And so Dave, they taught it. Not only did 
Dr. Drake, uh, Mr. Drake teach him how to read and write. But Dr. Lundgren taught him how to set type and stuff. So he was in there. And this, this, his, this is going crazy now because he was in the newspaper there. And it was a newspaper called The Hive. And Dr. Uh, Ludrum was a nullifier. The Civil War had not started, but they were already having this argument north or south. Mm. He was a nullifier. He didn't want the South to succeed. Mm. Dave was sitting in there with all these men, hearing all these conversations mm. and stuff, and he would get things. He, he knew about the volcano that erupted in Italy. He knew, mm. he knew lots of things. So he would go hear the words and go back to his room and write them down and try to learn them. So God, that, that's so how cool. this man, who was a slave, educated himself did he live through the civil war and become free yeah he did live through the civil war and he became free wow and did he keep was he a potter in freedom they said he did a little bit but not much because the the pottery shut down they had no workers remember the labor was free oh and so they ain't paying the slave man they ain't giving Mm. him nothing dave dave was really high up i think for a while he was able to hang in there because when you talk about a pottery, you're not just talking about the, the actual making. It's the marketing. It's the, it's the firing of the kills. It's the making of the glaze. It's getting the clay. So it was so many people involved, but Dave was the focal point. Mm-hmm. Everybody at the place worked to get him at that wheel and stay at that wheel. Mm-hmm. So he made that stuff for him. So let's go through a bit of that old-time pottery process. Okay. How does it start? Would you you got to go and find like a slip of clay in the ground? You like, got to go find a place where it is. It's usually uh, it's a cutout or somewhere there. The early potters used to it's like two inches or three inches below the surface. They would find this red stuff, you know, yes. the red clay, Virginia, yeah, the Virginia yeah, red, it, red stuff is messy. It just goes all over the place. If you go down about a foot more, you get this white looking stuff. Mm. But you go down another foot or two more, you get the stoneware clay which is the high fire clay and they would dig it and so this this a lot of work they would dig the clay out and store it somewhere then they would have to have a mule they had a big hole about six foot wide maybe four foot deep and it was a mule with a big old uh thing that has a paddle they throw the clay in with water and it would turn it and churn it and then after a while they opened the uh, the floodgate and the the raw clay that was ready to go was was extrude out into the area then they would cut it off and and store it under burlap bags until they were ready so, so there was some kind of machine on the back of the mule that mule yeah. powered well he he to, powered it it went around and around and around and it would power the clay would would, would toss it they had to that and that was to filter the clay the filter clay it would get the impurity it would get the rocks the branches and all that stuff mm. but you got to understand even though the mules doing the work they had to have somebody there to pick out the, the stuff this is not processed machinery. This is the mule and people. He had to have people at this plantation. They were slaves. They had to do this work mm-hmm. day in and day out to mm-hmm. get the clay. Well, the clay was the first thing. The second thing they had to have was bricks. Okay. And usually, if they didn't have a brick maker there, they would make their own bricks. Wow. They'd make their own bricks, so sand- and then they would build the kiln. Now, so the next how do you thing, make a brick? Is it just it's sand that's heated up or something? Sand and, and clay and water. But they would make a brick mold. It, it'd make about six bricks at a time. They'd throw the sloppy clay in there, clean it off, and throw it there on the ground where it would dry. Uh, they would do maybe 10,000 bricks, but they would actually build a kill out of these raw bricks. they build a kill, put a top on it, and fire them. The, the bricks, it, it would be like six or seven courses wide, even at the top. 
Now, the first four courses of the brick would be the ones that would be good. The other ones would just be sold to build a house. Mm. They would do the bricks. They would build the kiln. The next thing they have, they have a, a fuel source. They had to go get that wood. They had to cut the wood down. They had to split the wood. They had to dry the wood and stack the wood. You're talking about labor intensive. Mm. Man, they had to have at least 100 or so people to do all the jobs that did. Now, Dave so, started off making the clay. He started off making the clay. He, he helped fire the kills. He, he did all kind of stuff until the, until the master asked him, did you want to learn? And he taught him. It took about four or five years for him to get really good. But he expressed interest and he showed uh, the ability to learn. You know, this was somebody who was exceptional as far as taking information and applied it. So he was good. Just to be super clear. So obviously today we have a lot of people use an electric kiln, whereas back then it would be like a wood stove, an outdoor wood stove. Like you said, you'd build this brick structure outside and then it would be with the burned wood is how you would, um, right. how, what do you say, fire the pots? Fire the kiln. Well, they had, they, they learned, um, you got to understand, Mr. Drake, Dr. Lundrum and all, and all of them uh, were together at this at this pottery, and they had known techniques from Japan and China. Wow. They learned different glazes and different techniques. So they had a, the basic. The first kill was like a groundhog kill, which was just in the ground, and and they made it like five or six feet long and like three or four foot wide, and covered with bricks, and they fired from this end to the other end, you know. But then as they got more proficient, they learned how to use shelves. They learned how to use what they call creek settings, which is ashes and, and broken glass and, and the clay from the, the creek to actually make a glaze. It's called a tobacco spit glaze now. Okay, I want to talk about that. Okay. So one of my favorite parts with pottery is glazing. Yeah. And even when I was a little kid in school and we would do pottery in, in class in elementary mm -hmm. school, the glazing was my favorite part. Yeah. The, all the colors, the, the crazy yeah. chemistry to get different yeah. swirling effects. Um, so today you can just buy a nice jug of glaze. Right. So tell us a little more as you've just starting. How were they making these glazes? Well, and, and then and then what were the kind of colors that you could get back then? Back then, uh, it was a it was a chemical called Albany. Okay, Albany slip from Albany, New York. Okay, it's a naturally occurring clay. You add water to it, and it's it's a brown. Wow, a brown color. Then they learn about cobalt and and magnesium and different kind of chemicals. When you wet them mm -hmm. and add them to the uh, clay, it makes a different color. They didn't initially start learning about glazes until they started firing. One of the uh, miraculous things about wood firing is that each trace chemical in the wood imparts a color to the clay. So oh. ash would uh, be a color, oak would be a color, cherry would be a color. And they use all kinds of combinations of different woods to heat the kill. Wow, and so, it so was just Christmas. like... Just like for like barbecue, people use different woods for flavor. You yeah. use different woods for color. Different woods for Incredible. color. Incredible. So it's amazing. And so now, nowadays, I mean, you, like you said, you can go buy a color jar. I won't like that. I use chemicals. You do you use old school? Yeah, I go old school. I got a, I got right behind you. I got a thing called Blue Albany. That's Albany Slip. Now they they stop uh, getting Albany. Albany is is dust on the street in in Albany, New York. If what? You, if you drive up there, you can scrape it off. But they didn't. But they didn't want to. They didn't want to do that anymore with the mines. So we don't have Albany. Anybody has Albany, it's like gold now, like really? twenty five dollars a pound. Really? You know, so 
Have you ever gone out and dug clay? I have. I have. Labor intensive work. Labor intensive. You have to dig it. You have to dry it. You have to wet it. And then you have to process it through a screen. And then you have to let it dry. Now, are you out in a field? Are you next to a creek? Are you next to a river? Like, is there a way to know the right spot? The best way to do it is to go down the highway and where, they, where they're making a road and they've cut out and you can see the different layers. And if, if you see the layer that you want, you ask them, they'll let you get it. You know? Wow. Because, I mean, there's like the red, the yellow, the green, the blue, and then there's that white clay. That's what you want. That's stoneware <laughs> stuff, you know, because the, the, the early potters did earthenware, which is that red stuff. Earthenware clay is right at the top, not too far down. So when you see a lot of Native American pottery, it's usually the reddish color. The reddish color. But, however, what they found out about when they started doing earthenware, they were using galena, which is lead. Oh. And lead was killing them. So Ooh. they had to stop doing that. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So what, what did you enjoy that process? How many times did you do it? I did it several times. I did not enjoy the process. Yeah. Uh, Brutal. Because I didn't have... The equipment or the tools, to, I didn't have a mixer, I didn't have things. But I, what I do now is I learn how to process the slop clay that I buy. So what I did with the, the old timers used to either, uh, they would save the clay if they made a piece and they had leftover, they throw it in a bucket. Well, back then, they used to urinate in it or either spit tobacco juice in it. I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. I put in apple cider vinegar, which brings back the plasticity. And so when I get a five-gallon bucket, I throw it out with a little sand on top of it, let it get thick, let it get dry, and then mix it up with the fresh clay. And so I can buy a, I can buy a 50-pound, uh, two 25-pound boxes of clay and, and one, one five-gallon bucket. And when I mix the clay, I got 300 pounds of clay. So what you're saying is if you have made something and it gets too hard, it's mm -hmm. how to make it back into the original form so you right, can just right. start from scratch? Just start from scratch. Oh, yeah. that's cool. I yeah. might try the pen. Yeah. yeah. But then you got to have it on your hands. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I got a, a kid that wants to take pottery from me, and I, he doesn't want to get dirty. I said, well, you can't do it. Mm. You can't do it. You, you can't have fingernails, and you can't not want to get dirty because you're going to get this. It's mud, man. Mm. It's special mud, but mm. it's mud, Okay. Man, that is so cool that you yeah. went out and, and, you, and you did and the digging. It. That's really, really yeah. neat. Um, let's see. So we talked about the glazes. That's, that's just totally fascinating. That's a whole new, that's a whole new thing. Uh, uh, Nick, is Nick, the guy that's taking the, uh, he's my apprentice, he, he's just getting into it. He, he wants this perfect glaze. I said, Nick, you have to make a 200 pots and, and work your way through th this you have to learn everything about it. You know, I, I, I remember one time, and, and this is this racial thing. I was at a show in uh, in New ha in, in Pennsylvania. It was Amish country. And this, this man walked by, and he pointed to me, and he said, told his son, if you don't stay in school, you could end up a potter. I didn't know what I know now. I, nowadays, I would have jacked this butt up. I'd have said, look. I have to know coefficients of glaze. I have to know heat dispersal. I have to know clay, the, the how they vetrify. I have to know all these things just to make a simple pot. Mm. So if your boy was to be a potter, it's it's education. You know, you can't just make it. You mm. have to do the whole process. So if I would meet that guy today, I would jack him up. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think there's, I think there's always been a um, discrimination on artists. You yes. know, like, oh my God, my son wants to be an artist. <laughs> he wants to be an actor. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, yeah. it's like really, you know, throughout history, it's been like, oh, yikes. 
Yeah. You know, I've got a weird kid. So maybe that he was saying something kind of like that too. Like you, yeah. you would be an outcast or something. What well, well, the thing about, and you know, as a black man in a white, uh, a white area, uh, yeah, he I felt see that he was comfortable. He was okay to do that. But I, at the time I, I couldn't respond. Oh, now mm-hmm. I can come by now, buddy. I got something to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've heard you say it on little documentaries that you've been part of. So how did the, what is the, the history with how the face jug got to America? Because didn't, what, what I think I've heard you say on little documentaries is it came because of one ship with one group of Africans. Yeah. The ship was called the Wanderer. Slavery had been ended and uh, this white man made a bet that he could, he could bypass the rules and he got a fast ship and he bought 300 slaves and they made it to South Carolina, quickly sold them and, and sold them and intact to, to uh, people at the pottery in Edgefield, South Carolina. One of the uh, potter, one of the people was a guy named Tubro. Uh, I, I, I mispronounced his name. He actually made face jugs. They were a novelty. You know, they didn't really do it as a thing to add to the pottery but they did it after work. In fact, an archaeologist in South Carolina actually went and found a, a kill that they made with the actual jugs. History detectives did a show on me, and the guy on there actually had found jugs that they had made. Oh my so God, that's how man. they started. I wish I saw that. I haven't seen yeah. that yet. Yeah. Um, now, would, they, would, the, would, would these enslaved people have to make them in secret? Were they allowed to make these face jugs? They were not really allowed to. They would do it in secret, and they didn't want the white people to see them making it because mm. this was spiritual to them. After a while, they uh, the white potters realized this was a novelty, and as as slavery ended, they began to appropriate. I call misappropriate what we bought here. They started making them. Yes, I've, so so um, where like I'm just trying to imagine if I were enslaved. It's like a bunch of people who are staying in a small room like this. Mm-hmm. What, like, would they hide their jugs in the woods? Like, what, you know, like. They would go out into the woods to make their jug. Really? They would take the clay really? and go out. They didn't want anyone to see because yeah. this was a, a ritual that they practiced. Right. They call upon the spirits to imbue the, the pottery with the spirits. And so they didn't want nobody to see them doing it. And then they would use broken pieces of uh, pottery, of, of shards of plates for make teeth or eyes or things like that. So no one, they didn't want anyone to see this. Uh, but later, you know, after slavery was over, then the other potter, the white potter, saw this and started, it was cute. So, you know, we can make some money off of it. You know? Well, let's talk a little bit about that because I read um, you did an article for Folk Life magazine or mm-hmm. something, and you mentioned that. So in the 70s or something, there was like a folk art revival where there was a lot of white potters that were doing the, the face jugs? Is, it it is may have started earlier in, in, the okay. six, in the 60s. Uh, the Smithsonian mm-hmm. started uh, a folk art show. Mm. And there was a guy down, I think it's in North Carolina, named Berlin Craig. Mm. And so he made a bunch of face jugs. And so he, you got to understand, he was a family, a generation of potters mm. where you know, you were the potter. That's what you did. Now, they were considered bluebird potters. Bluebird means 
they they farmed in the good weather and they made pottery in the bad weather. Mm-hmm. And so they took these pots. That's to, what that word means? Yeah, that's what it means. They cool. were bluebird potters. So he took these pots to uh, D.C. and he sold a bunch of them. And then other potters started to get on it. I mean, there's so many around in North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, that they're fo- they're called folk potters. They do uh, the horn jug, the devil jugs, and 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 make it, you know, kind of comical. The the face jugs made by the slaves was always, I mean, I got to say always, a religious connotation. Mm. They didn't make it for money. Mm. They made it because they wanted to honor ancestors or for protection. The other potters made it to make money, or mm. it was a cute little novelty. You got to understand, too, when they started in the early 1900s, the road system was not too good. Mm. There was a woman from New York City that went down to Seagrove and started th- that. The road started coming in, and she gave them glazes, and she gave them s- different s- shapes and stuff. And so they started doing it, and the road started coming through, and tourists started coming. Now, now we now we Who never was she cooking. giving glazes to? Huh? To black potters? Yeah. No, there wasn't no black potters then. Mm. There wasn't any. Mm. And so the white potters did all this stuff. Mm. Uh there were a lot. There were some black potters out in Texas uh, that I've read about, but in South Carolina, mm. I, I, I've never found any black potters. Mm. Once, once Dave was off the scene, I, I haven't found any. Really? So there's a huge gap. There's a gap in the in the tradition. Yeah. yeah. Really. A whole a huge gap, and I kind of feel like I'm the bridge. Really. I'm the bridge. I'm picking up what they where they left off. Well, let's keep talking about that yeah. because I read that that let's let's talk about you now. So let's talk about how you learned pottery. And then I, I read that you were at this family funeral and you heard like whispers about these, about the face jugs. Yeah. So let's hear about that. Okay. So I, I was about 13 years old and we were at a family funeral. I think it was Gaffney, South Carolina. Now, in the black tradition, when the old folks are talking, you better shut up. Cause you'll get smacked. <laughs> that, you know that I even grew up that way. I didn't say a word. Yeah, yeah. my my family was in Belgium. Mm-hmm. I didn't say a word. They were all speaking in French, and I was just sitting there dead silent. So yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. That's Carry okay. On. No problem. So finally, when Granddaddy Granddaddy was a tombstone maker, and Granddaddy, I asked him. I said, "What about the, what's this about face jokes?" He said, "You have an ancestor, great 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 aunt Evangel, four times removed, who lived in Jamaica, and we know she was a village potter. She made face jokes." And I said, well, what's a face joke? So he started telling me about the the funerary practices, how they made them and put them at the uh, grave site as a, because they were not allowed to have a grave marker. And he told me about the uh, spiritual aspect of putting the roots and all that kind of stuff in it. And so, you know, I was 13. And, and I, I took that in. I listened. I was 27 before I actually made a face joke. I was in college at... Uh, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and a white guy made a, a jug about 12 inches tall, and he, it looked comical to me. And I said, you know what? In fact, I still got it, too. Uh, I said, I think I could do better. So I went to my studio. I had a studio, and I went and made a jug. And I said, my jug's going to have black features. Uh, my jug is going to have the things that I knew about, scarification and things like that. Right, right a patch, you get, you get a scar on you. And so when I started making face jokes, yeah. Look, tell me about scarification. Scarification is a part of uh, our history when a boy or girl becomes a woman or a man, they would they would scar them or put some kind of mark on them to denote uh, that they passed from puberty to man- manhood or womanhood, you know. So 
in Africa or in here? Africa in Africa they, they their practice didn't didn't come across too much you know because the the white uh slave owners didn't like that you know they would brand a slave but they didn't want them scarring themselves up you know so they would do that yeah yeah so you're 27 you make your first pot what it was that like uh it's pretty sorry you know but it's what I felt it's what I it's what I knew when I started making face jugs I began to realize that I didn't have all the facts I didn't know all I knew that all I knew that inside of I had to make the jug I had to do it I didn't know why but when I began to make it I began to study I began to read I began to uh, dig up books information and things because you got to understand something a lot of our history is is unknown a lot of our history is not written it's written out so I had to go dig and when I started digging and started finding out about not only uh, the history of our people, but of how the people that you said was so bad were so great. I mean, they succeeded everything. You know that. You know, you you. I, I lived in D.C. A black man laid D.C. out. Benjamin Banneker, the white guy Lafayette, got mad and pissed off and rocked off the job. Benjamin Banneker took over and finished finished the layout of D.C. Okay, who who wants to know that? Who wants to know that the White House was built by black laborers? You know, the stonework, the woodwork, everything, you know. So when I started to understand that, that's when I started to get a sense of pride in the jug and putting things on it. The jug itself, the front of it would, would have the scarification, the, the black features, uh, the hair, all that kind of stuff. But on the back, on the back was where I wrote down what I knew. You know, I, I remember the first early jug I wrote down, I can read. And I spelled read, R-E-E-A-R-E-E-D. They, they were not literate, but they could write, you know. So, but then I learned things like, uh, you know, I learned about Frederick Douglass, you know. I learned about Dave. I learned all these things and I began to write. Sometimes my wife has to say, okay, that's it for a while. Let's go away. Because you're getting too wound up in this thing, you know. Because you cannot get away from it. It's in our DNA. It's in my DNA. Well, I can, I, I can feel it. I mean, I'm you're you're like electric. Like you're mag, you're like magnetized with this, and that's so beautiful to be able to find this motivation mm -hmm. through this like hidden history. Yeah, or this, a living history. Yeah, hidden yeah. living history. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, man, that is really, really, really cool. Um, let's see. Do you, okay, so. I read your interview on, on the Folk Life article, okay. and you told briefly about this one jug that was titled The Slate. Yeah. Will you tell that story? I'll be glad to. I probably had been making jugs about 15 years. And I think, I believe that I was making the jugs and they were, they were too similar. And I was not letting myself feel what this jug is about. So I had, I had two or three bodies made. I make the bodies first. And I put this 
jug together. And I said to myself, what did it feel like to be a slave? And why would the master or the, the, the woman of the house just start beating on the slave? So I asked myself that question. So I went and got a cloak hanger and I opened it up and made it into a whip. And I began to beat this jug. I began to feel what it felt like to be a slave and to be under somebody. And it just, it just broke me down. I cried and I screamed and hollered and I beat this jug. I had the eyeball falling out and the head was misshapen and, and it, it scared the hell out of me. And so I, after I finished beating, it took me a, a, a while. I covered the jug up with the tarp and put it aside. So my, my wife, Janet, was my girlfriend at the time. She said, well, what's that over there? I said, well, that's a jug I, I don't want nobody to see. So she went over there and took it. She said, you dummy, that's one of the best things you've ever made. And so she said, put a, put a glaze on it and, and we'll see. Uh, Randall Morris from the Calvin Morris Gallery in New York City came down here about seven years ago and he took a bunch of jugs back. That was one. The slave was one. And I said, okay, you can, you can have it. Because I still had not realized what I had done. He took the jug back to New York and about a, a, a couple weeks later, it was a major snowstorm. I think it was six years ago. A major snowstorm and one person walked into that, that gallery and he was fixated by the slave and he paid the money for that slave that night. Somebody else felt the pain that I felt when I made the jug. So now, what happened when I made the, the slave, I realized it's more about what you did with your hands. It's more about what you feel in your spirit. It's more about telling the story, but also not only telling the story, feeling the story. Because people, people that buy face jug, it's a niche market. It's not very big. There's not that many of us out here. And I don't know how many black ones there are, but I am not going to send a jug out of here that I didn't feel. I'm not making it for money. Even though money's coming, I appreciate it. But I'm making it because I have to do it. I have to tell the story. And that's how the slave came to be, man. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever make another one, though, because that was pretty powerful. I mean, just reading that and then having you tell it, my arm hairs are standing up. My head is tingling. Mm -hmm. Like it's I like that gives me chills. Yeah. And I'm very much into this type of uh young Carl Jung. He was a psychologist. Right. Um, but he had this idea about the shadow. And the shadow is like our darkness inside of us. Right. Yeah. And you have to contemplate what would make me a slave master? What would make me a serial killer? Like, right. is it in me too? Could yeah. I have that darkness? Yeah. You know, so, I mean, that is so haunting to hear you say those, those the, things. The thing about, I've realized about myself, when I was younger, uh, I'm the oldest. It was me and Michael, Peggy, and Carol. I had to protect my brothers and sisters. Well, my sister was being tormented by this guy. It was, it was playful. But I tried to kill him because he was messing with her. Uh, I didn't realize until I was in the army that I had a hearing problem. But also realized about something about myself. I have in me a creature called the berserker. And I'm going to fight you. You're going to have to kill me. I'm going to fight you. You know, I don't want to fight nobody just to make them stop. I want to hurt them. 
forever. So I do everything I can to avoid situations where the berserker would come out. That's so powerful for you yeah. to hear, be, for me to hear, because these are things I think about a lot. Yeah. I think about what is in me. Yeah. And when you know you have a monster like the berserker <laughs> inside of you, yeah. then you know, okay, I know that that can come out. So we're going to do everything for that not to come out. But there's a there's a quote I think by Joseph Campbell. Okay. He was a he was a mythologist. He loved comparing mythologies mm -hmm. from other worlds. There was a quote: "The monsters you can eat give you their power." Mm -hmm. So it's like the monster you can take into you. Right. That berserker right. gives you the berserker's power in a safe way. Yeah. Well, see, the thing about the berserker is I know he exists. I know that my hearing is a problem, so I try to avoid. But also, you know. Uh, you see me, you say, it's a, he's a mild-mannered, peaceful black man. No, he's not. I'm ready to burn down the neighborhood. But I take, I take the energy from the anger and channel it into my work. I know exactly what I, you're I love, about. I love what granddaddy was a stone carve maker, a stone a tombstone maker. I love pounding on stones. That's how I take this energy. But, you know, if you have this ailment, you know, you got to use it. You know, yes, don't, sir. don't just, you know, channel it because you blow up. I use it in my work. So I do a bunch of artwork that are paintings that yeah. are like my nightmares. They're <laughs> like my anger. Okay. And I feel the same way. If I don't get to be creative, I'm angry. Yes. Like yeah. if I'm not creative every few days, even every day, I start getting really mean and angry. Mm. And um, yeah, I put, I know what you're saying. I, you know, obviously we have totally different ancestry. We right. have totally different lives, but I still can understand putting those huge dark emotions you got to put it in creativity because yeah. otherwise you're going to put it out in the world. Yeah. Well, the thing about the thing about the anger and, and all the answers that we have is it has to come out. Yes. That The artists that do this are the great artists because yes. they didn't give a damn whether people liked it. And I mean, think Basquiat. Yes. That young kid. He's you great. Know, he, he started throwing paint on the walls. Him and Andy Warhol, they started doing all that. And then and then he became good. But when you can when you can get it up and get it out. And get a scene, then you you have someone else. That, oh, that's me too. You, yes, it's saving. It, it, it helps it, me. Yes, and you're making those dark emotions safe for yeah, others safe, to feel. Yes, and for you too, because yes. they'll they'll consume you with depression and anxiety and stuff like that. I mean, I, I get depressed, but I, I remember when I was in Johnstown about 20 years ago, they said, "Well, you need a therapist," and I went to the therapist and Prozac and St. John's Wort and all this stuff. And so finally one day he said, "Look." You never stop doing the pottery. That's your salvation. Stay at that wheel. So I, I didn't need nothing. Just get on that wheel, boy. <laughs> That's what I did. And that 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 helped me. That saved me, you know. God, that is so powerful to yeah. hear. Yes, I know I do know what you're saying. Yeah. Um wow, yes, yes, yes. Um <clears throat> Yeah, there's a there is a therapy, there's a therapy in channeling your emotions create creatively into art. Right. And even if it's for no one to see, just scribbling and getting it out. Mm -hmm. um, wow, man. Well, see, I went to art school. I, I went to uh, Mount Aloysius Junior College. I think I was about 33. I had been working at Cobra. I hurt my back. And so they said, well, you can you can get on compensation. I said, well, I want to go to school. So I went to, I went to this school. It was a Catholic school. And uh, I had grown up with a with my dad who was an artist and so i even though you have troubles related to your parents you still pick up stuff 
So I went to school. I was drawing and painting and sculpture and all this stuff. I knew stuff. I knew, knew how to do it. And they channeled it and helped me. And so this is what, you know, because art is about speaking the language of, you know, what does it mean to, to take this line and make it real? How do you take this line in a piece of sculpture and make it go around the backside? How do you do a face and make the nose look real? How do you build, build? And you do it in your drawing. You take one, you take two dimensions and make it three. Mm. You know, so this is this is what, but it's a lifelong process of mm. being, first of all, knowing yourself. Yes. You have to look inside. Because yes. most people don't want to look, we don't want to look into the abyss because that's where the scary stuff is. Well, that, yeah, most people, when they realize there's a berserker in there, <laughs> it's pretty scary. It's scary. So yeah. I don't want to end up in jail. It's like, yeah. I don't, I, I have an, a normal office job. I can't let this crazy, this yeah. crazy man out. Yeah, I, that's why Jan understand. I mean, I've been blessed. I have a studio, I have kills. I just finished the gas wood kill outside. So I got to create, I got to outlet for my work mm. i got an outlet for me mm. i want to scream sometimes but <laughs> but now i pound the clay or i pound the stone or the wood or whatever mm. and and get it off of me because i mean you you have to use this this is part of a gift that we have from the ancestors mm. they 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 learned they wanted to do this stuff but they were denied mm. and so here i am the bridge being able to do everything they they wanted to do and i can do it now I wanted to ask you this right on this, and I hope yeah. I can get. The, I can. I hope I can say this clearly. Okay. So, again, thinking about ancestors, um, you know, me and my girlfriend were both trying to be artists for our careers, right. and we're at the beginning of that phase in mm -hmm. our thirties. Okay. So both of us in our ancestry have had like great aunts, grandmas that were like Sunday painters, right? Okay. So they paint on Sunday, it's for fun, no one really sees it. So now to get past that step in our family tree to become a professional artist, there's a bit of a there's a bit of an obstacle. So what I was thinking about, and I, I hope I can say this, I hope this is clear what I'm trying to say, is for your ancestors to be to have been prisoners making this artwork. And and not only are they hiding their artwork, they are forced workers for zero dollars. Right. For all these years later, for you now yeah. to be making the same artwork, right. yeah. to be praised for it, yeah. to be paid handsomely for it. Right. Like there must be like, I'm wondering, is there like a psychic weight or a block? Like, am I even allowed to make this money from this? Like, is there a turmoil in ha having to, to evolve that to a, do you, do, am I making sense? You're making sense. Like you were kind of saying it. Now you're here making what they couldn't what do. What they couldn't do. I have to realize that everything that I do, every income that I'm making off of these jokes, every accolade, every magazine, every book, I'm on their backs. It's yeah. in my DNA. People don't believe it, but it's I have to do it because they did it. Mm -hmm. And they have are telling me stuff and, and showing me stuff or ideas come up. And they didn't come from the cosmos. They came from the ancestors. Mm. All the longing, all the guilt, all the things. Uh, I'm claustrophobic. Mm. And, and we were talking about this the other day. Oh, if my God. They put them on the ships in Africa, and they put them into a small area, like two foot tall. <sighs> and they had to poop and stay right there. I'm claustrophobic. I, can't, I don't want to ride elevators. The only way I can ride an elevator, Jan said, you have to just look at my eyes. I don't like to be in enclosed places. So, wow! The responsibility of taking information, 
Now, they, don't, they don't, say ancestral trauma gets yes. gets stuck in the DNA. Yeah, it's the DNA. It's so the, you're it's feeling the, it's the sickle cell <sharp> anemia. It's the food. Mm. It's the culture. But also, what I've also been able to do, and they told me this, uh, take advantage of every opportunity to mm. learn more. Mm. But remember, you're going to do what we want you to do. Mm. Learn how to fire that kill. Learn how to build that glaze. Learn how to do everything that the that the society denied you okay mm-hmm. they they redlined us we couldn't leave they they cut off from jobs mm-hmm. uh they cut us off from trade and everything learn everything you can and then do it but do it the way we will show you how mm-hmm. you know but the thing about it is you have to be willing to put yourself down and just listen to something that you can't see how do you so how do you feel that how do you get a message from them is there any way you can because i understand that i understand when because I'm an artist. When I'm inspired by something, I don't know where that comes from, but yeah. you're being told to do you're something. You're being told. How do you feel that there's that it's from the ancestors? Is there any, can you describe that at all? The, the, the feeling you, comes, the feeling comes not when you're looking, but when you're not looking. Mm. Uh, I'll give you a good example. I was doing a residency with the children um, in Pennsylvania, and I had uh, run out a six foot by six foot area with half inch tiles, raw clay on the floor. And we were gonna take each piece and and uh and and make a tile. Somebody that wasn't even in the class came in and walked right through them. Oh and I and I, and the ancestor said right away, just use it. I made him take his shoes off and look at the bottom of his shoe. Look at the prints there. So I made everybody walk through the clay. It's advantageous, it's adventurous, it's also um uh, in that same class, I learned something else. I, I, I've been making eyebrows the traditional way. Mm. Somebody had a threw a piece of uh, uh, rag was on the floor, and it was balled up, and it was continuous from right to left. And the boy, and one boy said, "Oh, that's Anthony Davis." I said, "What?" Yeah, he's got a unibrow. He's a basketball player for the Los Angeles Lakers. He got a unibrow, so I started making unibrow. I, I picked it up from the kids. It was laying on the floor. But you have to be willing to step out of the box. You know, yes, I have a lesson plan. I know how to make a lesson plan. But five minutes after you walk in the room, the lesson plan's out the window because that's not what the kids want to do. They want to do what they want to do. There's a very, so maybe, do you consider yourself a folk artist? No, I don't. Okay. I'm not a folk artist. What is a folk artist? A folk artist is the person who have uh, learned that tradition mm. and follows and carries it on. Mm. I'm I'm an outsider artist. Yes, I I'm love outside. That. I'm outside the box. I didn't go to your school. I didn't go to Alfred. I went to David Robinson Throwing Workshop and everything he taught me in two weeks, I'm still doing. Uh, I, I didn't learn glazes like you did. I didn't learn firing. Mm. I'm a gypsy potter. <laughs> this a gypsy is a, potter. This is a good story. I was in Johnstown. It was a, it was a white guy. He's really good at uh, he Bill he Bill Kimmick. He had a, a a pottery studio. Every time I needed to fix my kills, Bill Bill uh, taught me how to show and fix it for me. So this this white college was calling me to come and and help them figure out what to uh, how to make a pottery studio. So Bill said, get an anemometer, which is helping with the airflow. Uh, get a voltage meter. Uh, get yourself a nice uh, a, a nice jacket and nice clean shirt and everything. And, and so I went there and after uh, five hours of going through the building and telling them what the heat dispersal and tell them about the, uh, the electrical, everything, 
the next day, and I wrote it all down, and the, and the young lady took it and wrote up a three-page uh, proposal. So the next day, so <laughs> this is what Bill's, Bill told me. He said, Jim, and Bill was a very nice white guy. He had black uh, children in his family. And Bill said, look, and this is the word. He said, you can be a nigger potter all your life, but you need to step it up. You need to learn how to deal with these people because they have the money. You don't. So Bill told me what to do, and I did it. And the next morning, we had breakfast. I presented the, pro the proposal to her, which somebody else typed up. And so they asked me, what is your fee? And in my brain, I, I, I was saying, $3,000? I told them my fee is $5,000. They were so quick to pick that, make that out. But I did not make that connection right away because stereotypically, I'm not supposed to be able to speak like this. I'm not supposed to have all this information. I'm not supposed to present myself this way. But a white guy taught me. Wow. Taught so me he how. was saying he was saying you need to present yourself in a certain way. Yes. And yeah. have and have a certain level of confidence and confidence to to market yourself to it to the art world. To the art world. To to the white art world mm. with the establishment who has the money. Mm. You know, I mean, even now they I, I'm speaking at different places. And I realize that I'm black. Mm. Okay, I know that. I'm not using uh, slang. Mm. I'm not using cuss words. I am presenting the king's English. Mm. But as a black man, I'm competent. Mm. I'm knowledgeable. Mm. I can speak well. And it's like, you know, I've went places before, uh, and they said, wow. A, a black lady said, wow, for, you, you're really nice for a black guy. That's so well, weird. You know, like, I'm, am I supposed to be stupid? <laughs> am I supposed to be holding my penis all the time? Or, you know, I, I don't know. But but see, the thing about it is now I am, and Jan and I realize this, now I have to present myself to the public who's, and market myself. We just finished a residency at the Blowing Rock University, uh, the museum in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. Mm. Three-day residency. One day I worked with 60 kids. The next day, I did a face drug workshop with uh, 16 adults. And the sec the last day, I did a, uh, a one-man performance of Slave Potter Dave. Oh, they, that's cool. They paid me quite a bit of money for that. So what What do you mean the, the solo performance is almost like a play? It's a play. It's a one-man show of Dave. Uh, you dress up like I him? I dress up like Dave. I come in, wade in the water. And I, I come in singing. And, and then I come up with a bag of clay, wearing the clothing. And I come up there. And I talk about Dave and how he was born and everything. And I actually make pots. Oh, that's and cool. And then at the end of it, I take this stick and I write my name into the pot and I show it to them. They just erupt because this was a slave that could read and write. Yeah. You know, I mean, before when he would go to the studio the day, in, in the day, they would tell him what they want. Yeah. Then after a while, they started leaving him notes <laughs> because now this guy could read and write. So, I mean, so I have to present myself in such a way, but I can't forget who I am and whose I am and the people I came from. Hey, you just brought up an interesting thought that I've been wondering. Yeah. Um, is because you said, obviously, they were illiterate. Yeah. But how did they even learn English? Because obviously when, what was that guy's name, Dave? Yeah. They, uh -huh. did, did Was Dave born in America or born after? Dave was born, in, he was... Country born, 1801. Okay. Yeah. So, but before, how were they learning English? Like, what's, like, ev like even the dynamics of slave and master, was there someone there teaching them they, how to they speak would, English? Did you see the movie Roots? No, I haven't. Okay, you need to see it because okay. there was a guy there 
who helped Kunta Kinte learn how to speak okay. and learn the, the social moral aspect. I mean, because it's was, like, even if you have people that are prisoners that you want to work, you need to be able to communicate. Communicate, yes. So there would be someone there t- teaching There English. was someone there to teach to someone who usually knew pig Latin or something like that. Ah. Like the Geechee people, they have certain words that they use. They would, they would bastardize the language. So it would do, but they would have people there on the plantation who were able to, to deal with them and, you know, and quickly assimilate them. This God. is, this is the thing that, that I just really feel uh, bad about because we had to assimilate quickly Otherwise, we, we're not considered a good slave. We're going to beat or be killed or mm. shot or put in shackles. So we have to assimilate. So mm. that's what I'm not doing now. I don't want to assimilate. Mm. I don't want to be like nobody else out there. Mm. I want to do a job that you've never seen before. Well, I want to, you want to be yourself. I want to be myself. Free. And myself, I'm still discovering. Oh, that's a lifelong process. They, t- they tell me and tell me and show me. I mean, look at there. It, they're not, it's not a production line here. No. Everyone is different. Mm-hmm. They're from the same genre, but they're all different. They all tell a different story, you know. And and this is what I think artists have to do, you know. You 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 know, like that that song Janet Jackson saying, "What have you done for me lately?" Your art says, "What have you done for me lately?" Have you? There, there's tr- also a almost a burden to really being an artist because you have to do something like you're being like you're telling us right. today, like you're and you can't not do it. Yeah. And no matter what society thinks about you, you have to do it. Yeah. Now, um, because I am really interested in different cultures, mm-hmm. um, I know we're going forward and backwards in time. Um, so who were those those people, the people that brought the face jug to America? Who were they back in Africa? What were the names of the tribes? And do you know anything about the the what um, the lifestyle of those people was? I, I think my people are from uh, Nigeria. I think they're Mandinka. That's and, the name of the tribe, Mandinka? Yeah, Mandinka. The, okay. That's the tribe of people. Um, I know nothing about them. I know nothing about uh, what they did. I do know that they were farmers. Okay. I do know that they knew rice planting. Mm. Um, they knew how to drain the swamp of salt water irrigated with fresh water. Mm. They knew how to grow grow a crop, drain the field, get the crop out, drain the field, put the cows in there for a season and grow another crop. Mm. They knew that's why when the when the slave uh people wanted rice, they went to Africa and and stole them. Because they, they knew how they exactly how. how to do it. I, I did My a jug. God. I did a jug not too long ago and then sold to the Lackman Museum in Law in Los Angeles, California. The jug is called the rice, the seed carrier. The women knew that they were getting ready to be sold. So what they did was they went and got the seeds and planted them in their hair. They wow. planted the seeds in their hair with mud or whatever, so that when they got to wherever they were going to be, they'd have food what they had in in the to bring their ancestral yeah, to bring food to the new place. And the rice Incredible. genealogy had in the south, the uh, what they call it, Carolina Gold. That rice came from Africa, not I, from China. I, I know it Carolina came from Gold. Africa. Wow. And, and people are starting, I mean, all this stuff that you put us down and said we didn't know what the hell we were talking about, we knew. We knew it was brought here. The food, the culture, the barbecue, all that stuff started by that. black people. Yep, yep, you know, I've heard so the barbecue. We're, we're, and so what's my job? I got to tell the story. I got to tell the story from my narrow scope. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to deal in medicine. I'm not going to deal in politics. I'm going to deal in art. Yeah, but that's what's in so my interesting. Feeling. 
Yeah. That's what's so interesting is dealing yeah. is is the hyper focus of one craft. One craft. One craft. Um, but I do I have heard of the Carolina Gold. It's yeah. a very famous rice. Yeah. And just black people bought it here. <laughs> interesting. I mean, you know, that I was thinking about the, in the low country, they had areas down there. In fact, the white uh plantation owners would put the black people there because they wouldn't get the malaria. And so they would leave and they'd just leave you with a overseer and they would learn how to drain the fields and build the dikes and all that kind of stuff. And they were the most expensive uh, and wealthiest people in the world. They're from the rice plantations. Mm. And they would, uh, the rice and the sugar was where they killed them. Mm. The life expectancy was only five or six years. Jesus they worked you to death. Christ. Jesus. Yeah, I remember something from learning about it back in school with people working in, well, African slaves working in water and the water like rotting the skin on their legs. So yes, it's just like yeah, bone yeah. exposed. Brutal, brutal stuff. Brutal stuff, yeah. Brutal uh, stuff. Um, yeah. Well, is there, do you want to, uh, is there any other, um, any exciting thing coming up with your face jugs you want to talk about? Well, the, the most exciting thing is that. Do you call them face jugs? Or you call them ugly jugs? I call them both. Okay. Face jug, ugly jug, don't matter. Um, the most exciting thing that happened is. Uh, two years ago, we met a gallerist in um, Los Angeles, California, Alex Walker. Uh, he got me in a show last year during the pandemic at the Donoy's house in Connecticut. We sent seven face jugs up there. They sold the first day. I asked my wife, I said, well, they want some more? She said, oh, no, they're really efficient. They have it all written down. They called me two days later and said, send us 11 more. Congratulations. I made so much money. Alex said, what do you want to do with the money? I said, I want to build a kill. So last summer, I started hauling bricks. My grandson came, and he helped me haul 10,000 pounds of brick. Is it I, right here in the yard? It's, right, it's in the backyard. Man, congratulations. Two, yeah, we're going to take a look at it. I built a kill from a plans of a guy in England named uh, Joe Finch. I had a, a white guy who was just fantastic. He interpreted the plans, and we built a gas would kill in the backyard. I'm going to load it on Monday and fire it on Tuesday. I have always been a gypsy potter. I have never had my own kill. I've always had an electric kill, but never my gas kill. I've always... Um, so what did you do? I, I, you would I, go to other people's? I go to other people's kill. Now, here's another story. Here's another true story. I was at college taking uh, adult education pottery class. It was a guy in the class, and he was a graduate student. His name was David Hovland. David Hovland's wife was the granddaughter of Alfred Benz, who was the founder of Alfred University, which is the mecca for pottery. So David saw me one day and he said, Jim, let me talk to you. And I said, OK. And I, I'm wondering what's coming. Dave said, look, you like this wood fire stuff. And I got to tell you how to get it. They don't want a black man around. They, they don't want you around because they don't want you to know about this. But let me tell you how to do this. David said, Take shifts no one else wants, like 12 to 6 in the morning. Bring real food. Bring real, real wood. I had a girlfriend at the time who had a, her father had a sawmill, and they would cut off these cut-off wood pieces, and they would sit them down here to Hickory to build furniture. I remember showing up with that. And so I learned how to do that, and everyone would let me come there because I would do, I would do, I would, I would subvert myself, Okay. They he used the N-word. He said, you, you know, they that's how they're gonna treat you. But once you prove yourself, 
They will always want you because you bring wood, you bring food, you take shifts, and you don't try to hog it. You only put in four or five pieces. So that's how I learned. Mm. Uh, I went to the school. I learned how to fire the, the gas kill. I've always been under somebody else's thumb. This is the first time I have my own. Mm-hmm. No one's going to tell me what to do with this kill. Congratulations. This is my kill. I'm going to do it my way. And I, you know, I'm going to make the cone pack. I'm going to do everything I can to my kill. Because this wealth of information that I've got, but also the ancestors. I'm on their backs, man. I mean, you, you'll see it. I got, I, got a, I got a complex here. The only thing they wanted when slavery was over was get freedom and land. Don't give me anything. I don't need nothing else. Give me freedom and land and leave me alone. Mm. That's what I tell people. Just leave me alone. <laughs> I, I'll make it. I'll make it. I'm a good worker there. Because just because I'm obviously like congratulations so much Thank for, you. for Thank being you. able to reach that as an artist, to, yeah. be, to be a career artist. Yeah. I mean. To have your own. Beautiful. Yeah. To have your own studio. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I guess I just want to make sure we didn't go too fast over it. Because in the beginning, we were, we were going fast. Yeah, yeah. But just kind of like, so aren't, so the idea was, well, two things. You had mentioned earlier that your father, he was his, he was a craftsman. He was a, a gravestone carver. No, my grandfather. Your my grandfather. grandfather. My was grandfather, a, yeah. Was a tombstone carver. Tombstone carver, yeah, yeah. And then you were saying earlier that so what face jugs were used for back in the day mm-hmm. was slaves were not allowed to have a tombstone or oh, a grave marker yeah a grave marker mm-hmm. so they'd be buried just anonymously yeah right so they would i guess in secret they would place the jug to say who's there well you got you got to understand when we talk about slave graves you you got to realize when they were in uh the islands they picked up voodoo and yeah. voodoo says anything that you possess, your spirit, right? Your your pots and pans, your belt, your your watch. Oh, I mean, they didn't have a watch. Your anything, your piece of cloth. So anything would be there at the grave marker, and the face jug was there too. You know? Oh, so any of the possessions would be placed on We'd top. Place on on that area. Yeah. Um. Oh. How how incredible that your grandfather was then became a tombstone maker, right? Yeah. Because of what they they couldn't have in the past, right? Incredible. Well, you know, granddaddy was, his, his, his father was white. Okay. Grandfather, uh, Boris McDowell from Ga- uh, Gaffney, South Carolina, was so intelligent, they wanted him to go to medical school. But he wanted to marry uh, his, his wife, Aura. And so he, he, they helped him set up a, a tombstone business. Now, he did something that was unusual. A black man had his own business in the 20s during the height of uh, Jim Crow, mm. and he carved stone. He didn't make it out there. Some tombstones were made out of clay. Oh, really? Yeah, they, they made out of clay. You can find it. They're kind of rounded and big and stuff, but he carved stone. Now, I don't know where he got the stones from, but he was proficient in lettering and shaping things. Incredible. And making, you know, so he, he was good at that, and that was good. And then his son, which is my father, became an artist too. And what he, are your what was your your father's art? My father was a painter, but he also did sculpture too. Beautiful. So, yeah. what, was he oil painter or what? He 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 used oil, but he also used acrylics. He used uh 
pastels and, and watercolor, you know, and I picked up a lot of stuff from him. I, I have some of his work to was, this day. Was he, was he, did, did he have another job or was he able to be a career painter? You want another story? Go for it. Okay, man. here it is, Washington, D.C., 1954. My father and my mother got together enough money to buy a house on 26 Channing Street, Northwest. We were the first black family there. $12,500. My mom just died in June. The house is worth over a million dollars. We're getting ready to split it. And so my dad worked as a security guard for the Pentagon. He had been in the Navy, you know, when all black people could be nothing but cooks. He was a Pentagon. He was a security guard. And then after he got off that job, he went to Iris and Marl as a waiter. While the bus was in D.C., Nobody used any wrong words. But the minute the bus crossed into Virginia, Maryland, nigga, get to the back. He did that for us every day. I didn't realize it until I was older that he did this. So he wanted a job at the Naval Research Laboratory. The only way he could get it, they wouldn't take him because he just went to a small school. He didn't go to their schools. So he, he entered the Pentagon Art Show. I think it was 1960. The first year he won it mm -hmm. with a beautiful painting. Then he entered again. He won it again. Two years in a row. So then he went to him and said, look, I won this Pentagon Art Show. They said, okay, we'll hire you, but we'll train you. Within two months, he was doing everything they could do. He was very intelligent, well-read, well-versed, mm. but he was black. Mm. And so they didn't think a black man could have the skills and the knowledge and the fortitude to do this kind of work. He was good at it. Well, I know. can't wait to see those paintings. Yeah, yeah, he, he was good. Now, you said something before that I don't want to end without talking about. Okay. So I love paranormal stuff. Yeah. I love ghosts. I love all that kind of stuff. Do you believe that that voodoo, that, that voodoo idea that um, someone's belongings carry their spirit, do you think, do you, have you have any experience with that? Do you think that's true? I don't, I have never had any experience with it. I've interviewed like what? a paranormal investigator and they say very much like someone's, clothes, someone's watch, will carry. I had a chance to handle David Drake's pots. About 30 years ago, I was doing a, a, a country market. It was these people that owned, that had a museum there. And they said, you need to go here and do this show or something. So I did a show, it was in, it was in Delaware. It was the Winterthur Museum. They had just taken down a show of Dave's Potts. Oh, man, I begged them. I begged them. They said, okay, you can do it. Come on in. Put the gloves on. Set on the floor. They bought me one of his pots and put it in my lap. And I about flipped out because I could feel him oh in my. that pot. I could. I run my hand up and down the ridges. I run my fingers across the words that he wrote. I felt his pain. I felt his knowledge that he was valuable, that he was somebody. Now, fast forward it. Two Dad, months ago, a lady right down the road in Black Mountain has five of Dave's pots. She owns them. They're worth $300,000 a piece or more. And so she, the friend of mine who comes to my studio here, she said she wants to meet you. So we went to the house, and I about cried. There was all Dave's pots with the writing on them. And she said, uh, sat on the floor, and I already had gloves on. And she bought two of the pots and put them put one in my lap, I had another experience of Dave. I had another experience of feeling that this black man is happy that he's finally being acknowledged 
He's happy that his work has survived over 100 years. He's happy that his work is touching people and bringing people together. He's happy that the things that he wrote on the on the jugs uh, is, is showing the depth of knowledge, his use of the vocabulary, his, his depth of feeling. Like one of the poems, they, they, there was a, a migration going on. Everybody was going out west. And they sold his wife and his, his son. He said, I wonder where all my kin and relation is, friendship of all of every nation. He felt it. And he wrote it on the jugs. So we got his inst- his wife and his son were sold away. Yeah, sold away to so go out west. They're gone. Yeah, yeah. And he never saw him ever again. Never saw him again. God, so, can I mean, you imagine so he that? wrote things down that let us it, no, you know, maybe the people that owned him, it was a uh, it was a novelty. But now we look into this slave, this slave potter, and we see the aunts, we see the hurt, we see what he was really feeling. Because once he became uh, this great potter, he's still a slave. He didn't get a dime for this. They might have gave him a, some extra food or something, but he started to understand himself as a man, as an artist, you know. And this is what I take away from him, because in the midst of all the oppression and all the things that went on, he produced the best work. Mm-hmm. He produced the best that he could give of himself, knowing that he would get nothing of it. But here today. I look at him. I look to him as my God. When you said you feel it, um, are you? Do you see an image, or is it your emotions, or do your hair stand up? Like, how do you experience it? I don't it? feel. I don't see an image, but I feel his hands lifting this pot. Wow! I feel his hands uh, making patting this coil. The, everything that he did, I can feel it, and you can see it. When she put it in my lap, I closed my eyes. I, I, I felt I was transported back to where he was. I didn't see him, but I felt him. I understand. You know, what I you're felt him. And, Incredible. And, man. And, and when I write, when I do a jug and I do Dave presentation, I write his writing, and that's like, oh my gosh, I can copy his writing. I'll try to duplicate it, but I can copy it. To realize that he used to write on the ground when he started learning the letters, or write on the slate, you know. But he wanted he wanted education so bad, you know. So I interviewed a guy in Highland County, Virginia, who does maple syrup. Okay. But he does it like it's the 1800s. Okay. He does it old time style. Old time. Old. Um, the boiling. Ca- yeah, cast iron kettles, mm-hmm. woods, uh, wood outside. Yeah. When I left his house, I was feeling this like magical, sparkling feeling, and I was like, "What is that?" And I have this feeling that the ghosts are happy ancestors yeah and that i it's like that's that came to me when you're talking about touching dave's pots the ghosts are happy because they're still with us they're inside of us the dna is all around us i mean when when i do the things that he did it's at another level they didn't have the the chemicals they didn't have the 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 heat dispersed they didn't have the things that we have but yet they started it and we got to keep it going that's 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 the the crux of this whole thing. It's like, you know, that's why I, I tell people, I, I, a lady called me the other day. She has an autistic son who's black. He wants to, he's been doing some pottery, but he doesn't know really how to do it. And I say, at a school, they're going to they're gonna have a demonstration and then you're on your own. I don't do that. I work one-on-one with you because you're not leaving here unless you get it. 
I have an obligation, especially a child of color, to give them the truth. You know, this is hard. <clears throat> this is difficult. But if you want it, you can get it here. And she says, how, how much you charge? Nothing. <clears throat> she wants to give me a donation. I say at the end, yeah, okay. But I ain't going to charge nothing because I've been given this gift. So and do you feel die. a responsibility to keep it going with, yes. uh, with, uh, with other black artists? Definitely. I have, I have to. Fascinating. I've been, I've been freely, you know, I'm a Christian, but freely you have received, freely you got to give. Mm. If you close your hands up, you're not going to receive anymore. Mm. My hands are open. <laughs> Come and get it. I love it. I love it. <coughs> how does how does your God and Christianity play into any of this? Does well, it at all? Were your were your family Christians? Yeah, all of my family was Christians. What, um, what us? What sect or whatever? Uh, Baptist. 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 Okay. I mean, uh, black people left the South and they didn't want to stay with the Baptists, so they went to the Lutherans or stuff. You know. Mm. <laughs> In fact, my dad, we, we when they. Uh, started going to Lutheran church, um, they, my dad didn't like it and he went back to the Baptist church. But I went through a, a thing called catechism mm -hmm. where they teach you the things of the church. And so then you have to get catechized, you know, whatever. They teach you and you have to recite it. And so came time to, uh, to do that. They asked me that I want to do it. I said, no. And they said, well, why? I said, because Jesus is not in it. There's too many rules and regulations. You know, I mean, when you sing a song and, you know, with no emotions, no feelings, no, you know, if you go to a black church, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. They shout. They say amen. They they just let the spirit move them, you know. I uh, want to do that one day. I want to feel it. You want to, I, I gave you a good I'll be one. brought to tears, I'm sure. Uh, older black man, been in the neighborhood for 20, 30 years. So he finally said, I got to go to church because... No church like ours is in here. So he went down to the white church, and the white minister was, was getting into it. He was saying, amen. And, and the white minister said, amen, tell a story, brother. So the usher walks over and said, look, uh, we, we don't do that here. Uh, he said, you don't? He said, yeah, we don't do that in this church. And, and the guy said, the, the black guy said, I, I can't help it. I got the spirit. And, and, and the, the white usher said, well, you didn't get it here. Wow. Isn't that a condemnation of our church, of our society, that the spirits are being thrown out? Yeah, that's left out. Yeah, the left out. You know, so it's like I put my spirit in everything and the cooking and talking it. to people and playing so my guitar. We, we just moved to this very traditional area, um, kind of old school area in mm -hmm. rural West Virginia. There's a church literally just a few blocks down and both of our elderly neighbors go there. But they were saying just... Last last service, they said they had um, someone who has a, they have a second house in that area. Yeah. But um, they that person just came and and the energy was moving and everyone was speaking in tongues and I was like I kind of want to come and she said you're invited so it's like <laughs> I understand what they're saying because yeah. I've been part of group like group breathing works right. like spiritual yeah. breathing mm -hmm. where it starts getting pretty weird S stuff comes through you people are moaning people are like crying yeah <laughs> yeah crying <laughs> like ah we 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 have become so blocked off from nature. Yeah. You know, kids don't like, the, the, you can't go in the woods. Well, the woods is where things happen. You know, well, back <laughs> in the day, you would get killed in the woods. But I mean, mm. but, you know, I, that's what I try. My grandson lives in uh, Montana. He's a mixed race child. My son went out there and, and had a baby with this woman. Then he died a couple of years ago. But this child knows nothing about our culture. 
So every he's been here twice. Every time he comes, I try to teach him more. He doesn't know that this kill is going to build generational wealth for him to go to school. He doesn't mm. understand the legacy that I'm going to leave for him. He doesn't know the past. Mm. You know, uh, I'll give you another story. George was building the kill. He was putting the arch on. Who's George? On. George was the kill builder. Okay. And and I had to mix the mud that's going to mud as the granola mix. So two layers of fiber, two layers of, of tinfoil, and then uh, four, uh, four layers, about four inches of the mud. George didn't say a word. I'm up there. I'm down on the ground mixing it. I transcended back to slavery because when you're working, you have to work from can to can't. Can you get a break? No. You might get a break for lunch. But I kept working. I kept doing this. And my back was hurting. And I just felt, wow, this is this is how they treated them. If you didn't work fast enough, they, they'd hit you with the whip or, or, you know, make you not get the food. So I learned that while while we were doing it. And then also I realized they kept us from you. I wanted to learn welding when I was a child. I was denied that. George knows welding, electrical, plumbing, brickland, woodwork. He knows all that. A black person couldn't do that. And generationally, we were denied chances to move into an area so we could have a house that we could pass on. Mm -hmm. My father bought this house, and he told he told us before he died, he said, we, I will not have any money. The money that's insurance is for your mother. When I die, when she dies, we will, you will split this house. We're getting ready to do that. We're getting ready to get quite a bit of money. So I'm trying to prepare myself for influx of income that I got to do something with it. Mm. I got to prepare myself with this kill. Mm. I got to prepare myself. You are not elite because you're black. You're, you're black, but you have stuff in you that you don't even know. And my job is to teach you how to be black in America. And I don't give a damn what the rest of them say. His mother says, who's white, oh, there's no prejudice out in Montana. I say, well, the first time he came home from kindergarten, he wanted to know what a nigger was. She couldn't, she couldn't tell him. You know, she, she doesn't believe in this. Stuff. So I have to. You're saying his mom? His mom, yeah, mm. white. She, she didn't, couldn't help him. So that's, he's 12 years old. That's the dangerous age. Mm. You know, it's supposed to, policeman stops you and you mouth off and he's mm. having a bad day. He could shoot you or hit you in the in the head with the club. Mm. So I mean, you know, this is the obligation that we have in this country to realize there's a there's a segment of the population that still don't want us here. Mm. But I have an obligation to succeed, mm. to overcome what you think I can be. Mm -hmm. I can be better than that, mm. and I will be better than that. Because you, if you get out of my way, give me some land and freedom, I'm off to the races, Betty. <laughs> You're gonna have your pottery. I'm gonna empire. have my pottery, yeah. <laughs> empire for and teaching yeah. kids and everything. Yeah. Do all this. Wow, man. Well, this has been a total pleasure. Um, I've loved learning all this. Um, I love learning about history. So it's been fascinating to hear what you're saying. Um, yo, you know what just popped in my head? I wonder this, you know. I wonder, because I like I very much like history. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, um, like when you see people dressed up like the 1700s, like <laughs> in Williamsburg or something, I wondered if I were black, would that be uncomfortable? 
like to see people dressed up like the times when I would not be standing here looking back at them, I would be a slave. I was like, man, I, f I can see how that would be a little uncomfortable to go to like historical events and stuff. I've gone to places like that. I've been to Williamsburg. I've been to a couple of places where they have a white docent, you know, person mm -hmm. to lead you around. I'm uncomfortable with that because they don't say about the black people who had to lived in that back, in the shack back there. Who you mean the they're kind of skipping over it? The, yeah, well, not skipping over, ignoring it. Ignoring, ignoring it. it. Ign you know, I, I have seen recently that that Williamsburg does have a black um, living historians. Finally, finally, it, that's a new thing, yeah, huh? Yeah, uh, I'd like to go do a podcast. It's, about a, it's that. a guy. It's a black guy named Michael Twitty who's mm. a cook. Mm. He's cooking that way, and he goes around. You he know wrote him? a book called The Cooking Gene. Oh my God! It's that would just, be a good podcast. That, it's oh, about he, historical cooking. Yes, his name is wow. Michael Twitty. Lives in D.C. In fact, I, I'll I get you his phone number and everything. That. That'd be a nice podcast. I would love to do talk that. Talk to him. He's um, down. He's down in Maryland or somewhere down there. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, hey, this has been a pleasure. Your artwork is incredible. Um, so obviously, you're at a level where people, where you're at like the gallery level. Yeah. Do you yeah. still sell stuff to like? Average yeah. Joe? I do. I feel, I told Jan the other day, I said, honey, I want to still sell to the common people. Okay. Uh, I, I, you know, they joke that they, they sold over there for $10,000. I want to be able to sell it for five or $500 or so, uh -huh. you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I still want to do for common people because, mm. you know, the blessing that I have is not, it needs to be spread around. Mm. I don't need all this money. Mm. I mean, I got food, I got shelter. Uh, the money that I get now, I'm trying to, for my grandson, for, for Jan, if I die, I, you know, that's it. I, I don't, what, what, what I'm going to do with it? Mm. I don't want an airplane. I don't want a boat. I don't, you know, <laughs> I just want what I want. I want clay, man. Give me some, <laughs> give me some stones. I want, I tell you what I want. I want an air compressor and I want the tools for stone carving and wood carving. That's it. Mm. That's going to be about $3,000 and I'm done. I don't mm. need anything then bring me. I'll be looking for stones now. Mm. I'll be looking for some logs to carve and do. I do totem poles. I want to do some Ooh, of that stuff. You know? I like that. Yeah. I, I really do, like I, that. I've done totem poles before. Yeah. So that's um, what I want. I want something to work with. Mm. The money doesn't interest. I don't care about having a, 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 a suit with 30 count thread or whatever. Mm -hmm. I just want. You know, the well, basic. you're a true artist. You're a yeah. man with a mission. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but you do, don't you do more, because um, obviously the face jugs are more like a type of art. You do just like traditional ceramics, right? That you sell on yeah, Etsy yeah, and stuff? Yeah, I do I do um, the functional stuff. Functional, Bowls, that's the right plates, word. cups, stuff like cool. that. Cool. But I've taken it, I've tried to take it to a new level. level. Jan, Jan, Jan who's white said, look, everything you do with a face, with a, with a mug, Put a face on it. So I make a face. I make a face mug. I make a whiskey sipper with a face on it. Everything I I put a face on it. Mm. You know, and so it sells even more. You know, because it has a story. You know. Okay. In closing, I thought I could bring this up. We talked about it kind of earlier, but um, here's where I feel like it's so tricky, right? Because you were talking earlier about how there were all these white artists who were kind of adopting the face jugs mm -hmm. and then they were really profiting off of it. Right, yeah. But here's what's so tricky, I feel, with the whole idea of the cultural appropriation. Because um, when I know, speaking personally, when the muse strikes me, when creativity strikes me, 
I got to do do it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking, am I allowed to? Am I, is somebody yeah. going to be, is, is, are you, Jim, are you going to be offended that I want to make a face jug? You know, so it's so tricky with that. It's like, I understand the cultural appropriation, like when some huge company, you know, I think like Dior, like the fashion company, mm-hmm. did like a commercial with Native Americans dancing. Like right. that's so stupid. Right. And it's corny. It's like, that's cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. But when an artist feels inspiration, it's like wherever it comes from, I feel as an artist, I've got to do it. I've made a, um, a mug with a face on it, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, it didn't look like the African-American face jug. It looked like my own thing. It was like a little gargoyle. Mm-hmm. It came from you. It came from me. Mm-hmm. So I do think there's such a tricky line with that, right? It is. And I think we need to get past it. I mean, when I started doing my face jugs, and I, I, I was in the show down at Hickory, big face jug show. I didn't sell a thing. Uh, they didn't really understand me, and they didn't really want me there. But now, you know, my jugs are selling 10 times more than theirs mm-hmm. because I'm not a folk artist. I'm an artist. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't have a problem with them. Make your jugs. You can't make my jug. Your jug comes from inside of you, from your history. Right. You know when you. Yeah, mine looks more like a like a European like a gargoyle. Yeah. yeah. It looks like a troll. Mine <laughs> looks like a troll. Yeah. It doesn't look anything. It doesn't like this. look anything like that. You no. can't make you if you sit down and look at it, my jug. You can't. I you, think the issue is like the copying of culture right. and profiting from the it. misappropriation. I call it. You know. Yeah, that makes let's sense. Let's just do that. Say it. That makes you sense. You misappropriate it. You're making money off of it. The jugs were never made for money. Right. They are now. Yeah. I'm making them for money, but I would, I would, if I didn't sell any more jugs, I would still make them. Exactly, I would still make them. Um, okay, finally, the last, last thing, thing I want to say. Okay, good. Last thing I want to say. <laughs> There's this. I think it's the Greeks. There's a Greek term for when someone is possessed by their guiding angel, mm-hmm. and it's called the daemon. Mm-hmm. It's D-A-E-M-O-N, I believe. So okay. it's like not a demon. Okay. It's the daemon. Daemon, which is like. And it gives a person like energy and purpose in life and it leads them. It's their guiding spirit. So talking with you on the phone here today, like you really are just like so joyous. And I feel like you, you are, your daemon is like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Filling up the room. I kind of feel, I kind of feel that too. I never, it's a guiding spirit, but I do feel that. The ancestors are cheering me on. The ancestors are are telling me, look, you are the bridge, okay? On this side of the bridge, you're starting. You ain't following us because we didn't do this. You have to lead the way. The other black artists who want to do like I do, they have to understand that we're a bridge. We have to build this thing now. And that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. Incredible. Thank Amen. you. Amen. <laughs> Amen. This Amen. is an awesome conversation. Enough thank you so of this much, conversation. Man. All right. Thank you. Thank you.